as was mentioned already by Brother Ted near the outset of our time together this evening. We are certainly appreciative and thankful for the presence of each and every one, and certainly that which is most significant is the God of heaven appreciates that as well and expects us to be present and to be spirited in our worship of Him and to certainly participate in those things that brings the exaltation and the glory into our God of heaven. Inasmuch as we certainly have a gospel meeting nearly approaching for us, in fact, it begins some one week from today, tonight's lesson, I thought I would entitle it, as you can see on the wall to my left, the place of revival. And as we give thought to the character of what will unfold in the lesson, the text to which we shall turn our attention is that one from which we heard the reading in the ninth chapter of Ezra just a few moments ago. As you might expect, some introductory thoughts at least to appreciate the manner in which that text might fold into a discussion of revival would certainly perhaps lead us to these thoughts. We each understand that evangelism is a central aspect of a gospel meeting. Our desire to in fact proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ, to set forth in clear ways the matter of what the gospel proclaims and teaches that one must do to be saved, the character of what's involved in the forgiveness of sins and what Christ accomplished for us. And without question, those who are alien sinners who have never responded to the gospel initially, they are a central aspect of those whom we would wish to touch. But we also should not forget the following features and facts as well. That as you and I give thought to that, you'll notice that as we warn those that are ungodly, as Brother Anderson proclaims in simple and clear ways what the gospel proclaims, we would expect that those who are not right with God will be a bit uneasy, that they may be a bit uncomfortable because upon them will be urged a response, a positive one, one that will bring them into a right relationship with their loving Heavenly Father. But also must we in fact not forget there's another group of people who can be greatly benefited by a gospel meeting. And it's that very last element mentioned, to revive those who are saved. Those of us, there may be a large number who will not be in particular need, if you please, of a public response in terms of walking down this aisle and confessing error or being baptized. But you'll notice as we discussed tonight, there's a great benefit for each of us as well. In that, a revival may in fact take place. Isn't it a bit interesting that sometimes that word is the one used by many in the denominational world as they give what you and I would call a gospel meeting. They often will term it a revival. As you'll see and as you may have noticed in the reading, that word does occur at least in structure in the Word of God. Tonight, what is the place of revival? What might be a grand benefit for all of us as well? during the course of this gospel meeting beginning now in just a short six days from today. It is with those thoughts in mind. Let's first at least discuss a small bit of history, setting the stage for this text in Ezra, and then making some applications not only to us in general, but to this gospel meeting that begins next Sunday. As we do that, again, we shall be very brief in that historical frame, but some of its thoughts will be very telling as we make application of them in just a moment. As we well remember, the children of Israel, due to their sin, had gone into Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah had in fact proclaimed the fact that it would last 70 long years, and that it did, Jeremiah 25, verses 10 to 12. 
as you and I give thought to what unfolded. Their sins had brought them to an appreciation of punishment. God had, in fact, tolerated that for centuries. And their error had brought them to this placement in which God could best refine them, purify them, and prepare them for the coming of the Messiah through them if, in fact, they were to go into captivity. In Jeremiah 14, verse 7, that noble and ancient prophet very powerfully proclaimed, We have sinned in thy sight. In Lamentations 5, 7, same author there proclaimed, Our fathers have sinned and are not, and we have borne their iniquities. Jeremiah was fully appreciative of the fact that because of their sins, they were in fact in this place. And now might we notice that even beyond that, these thoughts, however, bring such a positive note. When 70 years rolled around and when it had been completed, sure enough, exactly according to the timetable of God, they were permitted to return. And thus, those that chose to do so could, in fact, meander or wander back, sojourn, if you please, back toward Jerusalem, and there to rebuild the temple there to, in fact, reinstitute the proper worship beneath the law of Moses, they were given the prerogative to give direction to, again, all that God had declared beneath the law of Moses. That brings us to that following note. The city of Jerusalem, however, as you can see about the middle of that slide, upon that completion, rebuilding of the temple, reinstituting the proper worship, one might initially think that they would have been so excited, so thankful, so appreciative that they would remain steadfast, loyal, faithful, and true to God throughout the coming decades. However, it wasn't that long before, in fact, degeneracy began to set in. Some of those leaders who had been such powerful ones in terms of providing direction, they passed away. Men, in fact, like Jeshua, the high priest. Individuals like Zerubbabel, the initial one who, in fact, led that return. They all died, as you and I would well anticipate. There seems to have been a dearth of leadership following their passing away, and thus, it seems as if that leadership being lacking, the people began to degenerate spiritually, doing things they ought not to have done participating in things that were in fact in error, not only in a worshipful fashion, but even in the regularity of their life. They began to enter into marriages that weren't right. They began to participate in activities that in fact were against the law of God. As you can see, some other things that might be noted. Inasmuch as they transgressed the law of Moses, onto the scene comes the man named Ezra. Ezra was a ready scribe. In 458-457 B.C., he made a second expedition to Jerusalem. He had gotten word that things were not in a good state, that there was degeneracy all around. And when he came and saw it for himself, he found it exactly as he had heard. There was, in fact, degeneracy. The people had begun to do many things that were separating them from God. Again, not only just in worship, but the way that they were living day by day. Ezra came back and was almost overcome with sadness. One of the first things he did was prayed. In his prayer, he said, High, the standard of the Word of God, we have transgressed, God, what you have declared. We have erred exceedingly. 
and we are in need of repentance. He knew that humility would be demanded, and he so earnestly prayed that this people would again appreciate the God who once had graciously allowed them return, and who would now also allow them to again be revived. It is in that state that this word revival was used by the prophet or by the gentleman named Ezra. And for that reason, might I invite you to look at Ezra chapter 9, verses 5 through 9. Brother Lucas read two of those verses a moment ago, but let's set a somewhat larger context, beginning in verse number 5, and listening to the words of Ezra as he came face to face with this situation. And at the evening sacrifice, I arose up from my heaviness, and having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord our God, and said, O my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to Thee, my God. For our iniquities are increased over our head, and our trespasses grown up under the heavens. Since the days of our fathers have we been in a great trespass unto this day, and for our iniquities have we, our kings and our priests, been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, and to a spoil, and to confusion of face, as it is this day. And now, for a little space, grace hath been showed from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape, and to give us a nail in His holy place, that our God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. For we were bondmen, yet our God hath not forsaken us in our bondage, but hath extended mercy unto us in the sight of the kings of Persia, to give us a reviving to set up the house of our God, and to repair the desolations thereof, and to give us a wall in Judah and in Jerusalem. You and I, I'm sure, can virtually hear the petition, the earnest outpouring of, this, of the heart of this man named Ezra. He even admitted it, didn't he? We have been in a trespass for centuries. From our fathers of old, God, we have failed we have not done that which was your command. We have failed in carrying out that which was your order. And even as he admitted these matters, he was thankful that God had made provision and made allowance for a little reviving. May I submit to you that if you and I give some focus to that issue of reviving, it is that aspect of it that may be so meaningful as you and I face next week in our gospel meeting here at Pippin. It is with those thoughts in mind, let's build a few short and brief points around that text of verse number 8 and see if we can't make direct application to our lives and our preparation as we come again face to face with their gospel meeting beginning next Sunday. One of the first things in verse 8 that Ezra made note of was this, And now for a little space, grace hath been showed us from the Lord our God. Ezra was exceedingly thankful that in the midst of all the things that he was now seeing, the evil, the iniquity, the abundance thereof, he nonetheless had a word of thanksgiving upon his lips for the opportunity of that grace that God had showed in allowing them to return. He again had led this second expedition back to Jerusalem, and Ezra was exceedingly grateful for the opportunity of reviving which it was to bring. Might I ask us to think a little bit about that same matter? For isn't it true that it is by the great grace of the God of heaven 
that this gospel meeting will become a reality. You see, His permissiveness, His favor, His allowance of these things to trespass, His direction to have put it into the minds of our leadership here at Pippin and to bring it to a reality. It is by the nobility and power of His grace that such will become a reality. And in light of that grace, consider what some thoughts may be concerning it. Here, lives of the children of Israel, and may we say, lives of all of those through the centuries to come from that day were changed because a refined people were formed. People who again left behind the bondage of Babylon, left behind all the evil and iniquity of that environ, and came to this place where again God was exalted. His way was lifted high, and they could be a people pure enough to bring the Christ child into the world. Today, isn't it true that lives can be changed here next week? We would certainly expect that any time the gospel is proclaimed, it can in fact be that change agent in the lives of individuals. For didn't Paul say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, that it is written, the just shall live by faith. Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. Lives can be changed next week. Visitors who come our way, individuals who perhaps are enduring great burdens or problems, or in fact, the directness of sin, they can, upon hearing the precious truth of God, make a change that will redound into their eternity in heaven itself. No wonder the excitement and appreciation of the greatness of the grace of God can be fully manifested and in fact seen as the gospel is proclaimed. Paul and many other New Testament writers were keenly aware of that reality. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 10, Paul admitted even concerning himself, By the grace of God I am what I am. Some today would still proclaim he is the greatest proclaimer of the truth Christianity has ever known. He, in fact, traveled across the Roman Empire in three grand missionary journeys. He himself on a voyage to Rome and never ashamed of the greatness of God's power, but proclaimed it despite the fact that he was so often in dire circumstances because of it. Beaten, shipwrecked, prison, you name it. There we would find the Apostle Paul at one time or another. In 1 Corinthians 3, verse number 10, Paul said as a wise master builder, he considered himself a fellow laborer with the greatness and goodness of God and are not you and I the same next week? Able to proclaim, set forth and declare in precious truth the goodness of God's grace. You and I are greatly blessed to be able to participate and have something that we would call a gospel meeting. Inasmuch as we mention that aspect of revival, wasn't it the Lord who joined in that chorus, if you please? In Mark 8, verses 36 and 37, we made note of that opportunity to change a life overwhelmed and overcome in sin. There Jesus said, What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Those instances in which an individual may find his direction, his meaning, his totality in life encumbered with these matters that are of this world, Jesus said, come the day of judgment, he would trade it all to be found right before the eyes of God. 
Next week, a message like that will be proclaimed loudly and clearly. Each of us need to hear it. We all need to be thoroughly reminded of it. For even we who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, Revelation 7, 14, can still find ourselves in the midst of a world who has so little interest in Jesus, and we need to be reminded that our home is not in this world. That we are looking for a place, a city, if you please, whose builder and whose maker is God. Hebrews 11, verses 9 and 16. But yet Ezra said something else. Not only did he make mention of that grace of God, he also made note that there was a remnant left to escape. That last point we just made, in fact, leads directly to this one. Isn't it amazing still that those who had gone into Babylonian captivity, when that decree by Cyrus was signed, and they were given the opportunity to return, the choice was left to them. God didn't make them return. God didn't, in fact, slap them over the head, force them by way of some kind of military army due to Zerubbabel or Ezra to go back. The choice was left to them. Many of them chose to remain in Babylon. Many of them, in fact, the overwhelming majority of them, chose to stay right where they were in the bondage of Babylon. There was only a selected few who chose to make the difficult, arduous, challenging journey to go back to Jerusalem, but yet they successfully made it. May I submit to you, in a sense, there's a parallel in that, of course, to our day. We live in a world of almost now 7 billion people. That's billion with a B. So many individuals, so many people. And in the midst of all of these, we fully understand that so many of them are making the wrong choices. Many of them are living in open rebellion to God, and they will admit it. They have no interest in God, little interest, if any at all, in the Bible. They couldn't care less about the church. And as if that isn't enough, there are also those who live in denominational error and even in other kinds of religious error. These may often think that things are well and right, but of course by the standard of the Word of God it isn't. As we give thought to any and all of that, may we quickly say there are still the reality of just a few you might remember we said only a few came back from Babylon, Babylon bondage. And today only a few are that righteous remnant. You and I, may I submit, still as those that are saved need to be reminded we must ever so conduct our life, ever so conduct ourselves in behavior and in steadfastness that we are always a part of that small remnant. For in fact the majority will not be saved. Jesus, did He not say, Enter ye in at the straight gate. For broad is the gate, and wide is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. From the lips of the Son of God Himself, few there be that find it. Thus you and I must, if we are to be saved, be an element of the remnant, not of the majority. No wonder the words of Ezra are thus so telling. He was so thankful that there was a remnant to escape. And today, can you and I not be thankful that we too have become aware of and obedient to that which is the message directed, of course, to all, but only the remnant has accepted it? For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. 
teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Titus 2, verses 11 and 12. It is thus an eternal truth that although the grace of God has in fact been manifested and appeared to all, He says it's taught us something. And there is where we find the difficulty for so many. They aren't willing to listen to the teaching and aren't willing to accept it and thus amend their ways to follow a life that is sober and of righteousness and of godliness. That kind of message again will be reminded of all of us next week that we must be thankful that we're of the remnant and in fact not only be thankful for it but continue to be steadfast in light of living in that same way. So many writers of the New Testament era point us to that very fact. In 1 Corinthians 15, last verse to that chapter, verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Sometimes one can begin to feel issues of discouragement in which it may well seem that labors go unnoticed and work goes unrewarded. God forever in that passage reminded us, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Thus, we need to be reminded as we shall be next week that we're a part of that faithful remnant and we in fact should longingly continue to so conduct ourselves that we can continue to be that faithful remnant. As you'll also notice in 2 Peter 3 verse 14, after just reminding them that seeing that all these things should be dissolved, what manner of people ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? He then pointed out in verse 14 that, Brethren, we should give all diligence to make certain of our calling and of our walk and our way before God. That diligence is highlighted with the earnestness that it'll take effort on our part that narrow and straight way is not treaded always so easily. Ezra, though, went on even beyond this, carrying us to that third element in verse 8 of Ezra chapter 9. He also said, "...to give us a nail in His holy place." Let us give some thought to what it might well mean as we discuss a nail in His holy place. I've listed some features or thoughts concerning that. That word nail, as it appears in that King James translation, literally means a peg, a pin, or a stake. And that word is rather frequently employed in the sacred text of the Old Testament. In fact, it was this kind of stake that was used to solidify and erect a tent. One would put pegs, of course, drive them into the ground, and they were the force holding and securing it in such a way that it would be a safe dwelling place for all those who might well enter therein. You and I can almost imagine a tear running down the face of Ezra as he was so thankful God for giving us a nail in his holy place. What may be some of the items that floated through the mind of Ezra as he made mention of this nail in his holy place? Might I ask you to give some thought that the children of Israel, at least on many occasions, had failed miserably. Despite the fact they had been warned to never in fact bow or serve other gods, they did. Despite the fact they had been straightforwardly told to never make any image of any other thing that might be to them as a god, they did it anyway. And so often in as much as they were reminded by the prophets 
and even others of the truthfulness of God, they nonetheless did all the transgressions anyway. But might we notice even in this instance, they had been given something sturdy and something strong, something to build a life on, something to hang one's being on, to provide meaning and structure and sustenance to one's sojourn here upon this earth. They did have it. They just too often ignored it. And they too often neglected it. And they too often chose to meander some other way. But isn't it true that Ezra was thankful that they did have a nail in regard to that holy place? And in regard to that, might we not say that we have also a nail, a peg, a pen, a stake that you and I can hang our life on? Is it not a tragedy? that there are so many who choose to make their way through this life without a standard, something to direct their thinking. How do they know whether a certain activity is right or not? How do they know whether some particular manifestation, some activity, some wording, some statement, how do they know if it's right? Without a standard, of course, one does it. And just as Ezra was so thankful that he could hang his hat on something, to give meaning to himself and even to Israel. Today, you and I also have something on which we can hang the essence of our being and rest assured that it's right and rest assured that it's sturdy and rest assured that it shall never fail. May I submit to you that will be proclaimed here next week from this pulpit. As Brother Anderson stands before us and unshackles that which could otherwise be bound, namely the Word of God, didn't Paul say to Timothy, the Word of God is not bound? 2 Timothy 2.9 Next week, as it is unleashed from this pulpit, may you and I, as those that are Christians, be reminded that we have something on which to hang our life. A life of faithfulness. A life of propriety. A life properly directed. Just as surely as a statement like that occurs... Isn't it rather fascinating that it is so often affirmed in the Word of God, isn't it? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. To quote the dual passages of John 14, 6 and Acts 4, verse 12. You'll notice the Lord said He's the way. As you and I might well have noted, it is preceded by that definite article, the. He isn't just one way among many. He's not one way among a few. He's the one and exclusive and only way that leads unto the everlasting presence of the God of heaven. That exclusivity, in fact, is utterly set forth so often in the Word of God. You'll notice in 1 Corinthians 3.11, "...for other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid." which is Christ Jesus. The Corinthians were having great difficulties in terms of various messages that had been proclaimed. We might remember some said, I am of Apollos, some of Cephas, some of Paul. But Jesus, or rather Paul, was quick to ask, Who was it that died for you? Into whose name were you baptized? And who is it that in fact must be the foundation of your life if you are to live pleasingly? All of us need to be reminded of that. Because isn't it true that so often those acquaintances that we may have call that very element into question? 
they seem not so interested sometimes, and perhaps by gradual character, you and I can begin to feel as they. We need to be reminded that there again is a nail that's been given us in the holy place, and by the character of that sturdiness and structure, that peg, that stake, that pen, you and I are able to live secure, ever provided in provision in regard to that which is right before the eyes of God. In the fourth place, Ezra also said this, Ezra 9 verse 8, that our God may lighten our eyes. Lighten our eyes. We each are blessed with the ability to see. We can, using our physical eyes, look at that which is before us. We can see the lovely beauty of our spouse. We can appreciate the tender features of our children. We can look at that which is dangerous about us and avoid it. We can also bring that which is so attractive to us near to our side and appreciate that God has fashioned and made it. But here, isn't it interesting that Ezra said that God might lighten our eyes. That word lighten comes from a word that means to enlighten, to illuminate, to in fact shed light upon, to make available as if new information or knowledge to us that perhaps we didn't fully understand or at least appreciate before. It is in regard to that that the Jews needed their enlightenment to take place. We stated earlier that over the course of years, Jerusalem had degenerated. They had begun to do things that were not right. They had begun to worship, so they thought, in ways that were improper. They had begun, in fact, to make associations with the nations right about them, to follow their gods, all of which was, of course, sinful and evil in the sight of God. Ezra said, we need some enlightenment. You and I well know our world needs it badly today. In so many places and in so many ways, we see men's eyes that truly are darkened. Oh, they can see physically, but they seemingly are unable to see spiritually. They choose the pathways that are condemned. They choose the walkways that are completely surrounded by pitfalls and dangers. They choose the walk of life that in fact is absolutely opposed to the things of God. Ezra prayed that those Jews might receive enlightenment. As you and I give thought to that today, there are some things we also should remember. I don't say this lightly. And sometimes some may think it sounds a bit arrogant or prideful, but it isn't in the Word of God. Christians are the most special people on earth. In Matthew 5, beginning in verse 13, You and I are likened to a city set on a hill. We're likened, in fact, to a candle that one doesn't cover up with a bushel, but rather with openness it gives light to all that are in the house. And verse number 16 concludes that set of thinking in language such as this. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Christians are indeed very special individuals. Those who are dedicated to the cause of God all throughout the sacred pages of the Scripture are lifted so nobly. In Genesis, the 18th chapter, when God, of course, had already well understood the fact that Sodom and Gomorrah were going to be destroyed... He decided to make that information known to Abraham. And Abraham, of course, was greatly sorrowful. 
And he began to bargain with God. Suppose there are 50 righteous. Will you spare it? And God agreed to do so. God, suppose there's 40 and 5 that are righteous. Will you spare it for the 45? And God said that He would. God, be patient with Him, but suppose there's 40 righteous. Will you also spare it? And God said that He would. God, be patient with me, but suppose there's 30 righteous. Will you also spare it? And God said that He would. God, suppose there's 20 righteous. Will you and your long-suffering character spare it, though there's many there for the sake of the 30? And He said that He would. That discussion, that conversation continued. 20, 10. Suppose there's 10 righteous. Will you spare it? And God said that He would. You might notice <clears throat> that in Genesis 19, 24 through 26, fire and brimstone were rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Apparently, there weren't even ten righteous in the city. You and I will remember, ultimately, only three escaped it, Lot and his two daughters. May we submit today that there's something very special about Christians. It is they who are the salt of the earth. It is they who are the city set on a hill. It is they who are that candlestick and the light that gives light to all about. We, as the saved, need to be reminded of that fact so that we can continue to be that city on the hill. We can continue to be the salt of the earth. We can continue to be that one that is the light, that candlestick that illuminates those who are around us. There are many people who you and I know who really are living in spiritual darkness. Ephesians 2 verse 1. They live overcome with sin and iniquity, and the example of our life and the teaching of our lips may be the only thing that can ever shed forth to them the enlightenment of the word of truth. No wonder next week we should be excited to hear it so that we can better arm ourselves with the ability to teach, to conduct ourselves, and to instruct them in the way that they can understand the blessing of God for them. Fifthly and finally, we also notice that in verse 8 of Ezra chapter 9, the very last element in the verse reads, And give us a little reviving in our bondage. Ezra thus was finally appreciative and thankful as he made mention in earnestness of prayer for a little reviving. Our comments concerning that perhaps need be few, but isn't it interesting Ezra was thankful for some revival. It may be that all of us need to have again the flames of excitement kindled in our spiritual life. You and I also, we understand, can allow things to become a drudgery, a habit, a ritual, something through which we go through some degree of motions, and maybe our heart just simply isn't in it as fully as it once was. If that's true, we need a revival. I need one, you need one. So that again, we cannot be lukewarm as the church at Laodicea was. They made the Lord sick. They thought that they were righteous. They thought all was well. They thought they were in no need of anything Christ had to offer them. And all the while, of course, their state was so pathetic. For wasn't it true Jesus, in addressing them directly, said, You're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and sick. They thought they were none of that, but in fact they were. If that's true, all of us, or you and I in particular, are going to be in need of some revival. 
You see, what Ezra thus declared in the long ago can be beneficial to us as we make final preparations for the character of our meeting next week. Will you and I make the dedication to be present at every service from which we're not providentially hindered? Will we make preparation to participate once we are here, to lift up our voice in majestic song and praise to God, excited to hear His Word proclaimed, thankful for the fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ? And of course, perhaps those who are not faithful members, whom they can be challenged and charged again with the element of truth. It is further many things for which we again can appreciate a benefit uh, to us as well as those who are members of the body of Christ. In summary tonight, as we've considered a place of revival, I would submit to you that we've learned many things and we've used Ezra the ninth chapter as our guide, specifically verses 8 and 9. And as we looked at verse 8, these are the matters that we discussed. The character of the appearance of God's grace and the reality of this gospel meeting. The appreciation, as he stated next, of the understanding of the remnant, which you and I must continue to be if we shall be as God would have us be. Ezra also made note of that nail, a sturdy feature and structure on which we can hang a life of character and integrity. May we also understand that as we give thought to the fourth lesson, that you and I can have an enlightenment to our knowledge in our eyes as we're reminded of some great truths in the Bible, and that prompts us to even closer fellowship with God. All of that might be summarized in the word revival. It is that particular matter for which Ezra prayed, and it's that to which you and I can continue to pray as we consider this gospel meeting shortly before us. Tonight, would there be one or more in the audience for whom at this point you already know that you're in need of revival and change is in order because you understand that things are not as they should be. God dispatched the Son, the second member of the Godhead, if you will, to this earth. And in His coming, He paid all the price for your sin and mine. Since that price has been paid, and since forgiveness is possible, why do you delay? Why, why do you procrastinate? Tomorrow will be no better than today, and in fact, tomorrow may never be yours. Why not tonight? Today is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. You can be remade into a new creature this very night. That newness is set forth in Romans 6, 4, as well as 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. If tonight you need to respond initially to the gospel call of invitation, why not this very moment? If you have begun that walk with Him, you've repented, you've confessed, you were baptized, after, of course, you believed but you no longer are faithful, why not come back to Him this very night? This morning we were blessed to witness a person who come forward and requested prayers of strength and fortitude and forgiveness. We'd be more than delighted to pray on behalf of another this very evening. If any of that would be the need of your life, why not? In urgency, let it be known while together we stand and while we sing.